Well, good morning. My name is Scott Burns. I'm the youth and family pastor here. Scott Andrews is at Camp TVR leading a marriage conference. Uh, he is probably delivering his last message even now, so if you want to pray for him uh, this morning, that would be good. Uh, you can pray for me as well. I'm on microphone number four, and we're at the beginning of second service. I went through three in the first service. Um, now I'm using Scott Andrews, which is kind of the holy grail of microphones. And if I break this one, I'm probably fired. So you can pray for me as well. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, if you turn to Mark chapter 9. And while you're turning there, I'll just say a couple of quick things about the gospel of Mark. It has become for me a source of spiritual food over the last year that I've just returned to again and again. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are called the synoptic gospels, and there's several different reasons why they're called that. One of the main reasons is that they c- contain some of the same stories, and even their, the arrangement is, is similar. Uh, but Mark is definitely unique uh, among those three. Even though many of Mark's stories, uh, we, see, we find them in Matthew and Luke as well, a lot of times Mark's stories uh, contain details that Matthew and Luke don't include. Mark reads with a fast pace. If you just read through it over like a week, you'll see what I'm talking about. It just, it just moves like a, almost like a movie trailer uh, from one scene to the next. It was originally wit- written for a fairly wide audience, and we know that because Mark will explain some things about Jewish customs and traditions that, that you wouldn't have explained if you were writing to primarily a Jewish audience. So it was written to non-Jews originally, we get some unique glimpses of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. We, we, we see his humanity in some ways we might not necessarily see in Matthew and Luke as well. Uh, it's, a, it's a great book, and if you have not read a Gospel in a while, I'd encourage you to do that uh, for the sake of your faith. And if you, if you haven't read one in a while, I'd encourage you to consider the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it has certainly been feeding me uh, lately. I'm going to ask that you would stand this morning as we read God's Word, if you're able to stand. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29, and I'll read it for us. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it it throws him to the ground, and he he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, 
so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us as we dive into it. Father, we have just sung a song and we have said, the more we see, the more we love you. And I pray that this morning you would open our eyes and our hearts to see you even more, resulting in greater love, greater obedience, and greater faith. We need you this morning. Would you do your work among us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever struggled to trust God? Have you ever found yourself consumed with doubt? I would suspect that most of us in this room have had this experience. I have. If you can, think about one of those times. What did you do in the midst of your doubt? If you were having difficulty trusting God, what did you do? Here's another couple of questions for you. Have you ever been seeking to serve God in a specific moment but failed miserably? Have you ever had an experience where it seemed like God's promises had not come through for you? Again, I would suspect that most of us in this room have also felt like we were having this kind of experience. And you could even think simply here. Serving God can happen at the dinner table just as much as it can happen in Africa. Have you ever tried to do what God calls you to do, say with a family member or a co-worker or a friend, but somehow things went terribly wrong really quickly? Has that ever happened to you? In the first situation, doubting God, we have at best a case of weak faith. In the second situation, we have what I would describe as a malfunctioning faith. Now that word malfunction means to not function properly or to fail to function at all. Recently, I've had two malfunctions uh, related to my car. Most recently, I went to start my car and nothing happened. It made no sound at all. And a few weeks prior to that moment, I was attempting to clean my car out, you know, for that annual once, once a year cleaning, and the shop vac stopped working. I'll come back to those two things later. There's a purpose for bringing those up. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably had moments where your faith was weak. Most of us have struggled with unbelief of of some kind, which usually leads to us disconnecting with God. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, And that he rewards those who seek him. So two things we must believe if we're going to be close to God is that he exists and that he's trustworthy. That he's for us and not against us. Pastor Scott A. has been leading us through the life of Joseph found in Genesis 37 to 50. And I don't know about you, but, but I've been particularly blessed by this study. I've really enjoyed it. And it, it has just felt like one of those studies that is meeting so many people 
and their individual points and just doing some, some great work. And I think it's doing that for us as a church as well. It's just been um, just one of those studies. It's been comforting to be reminded that God is in the details of our life, that he's sovereign over every event and that he works all things together for good. But knowing these truths in my head and acting on them daily in faith is different. The main idea in our passage this morning is that faith can be weak or it can completely malfunction. In either case, there are a couple of things that need to be examined in order to diagnose what's happening with our faith and in order to to bring it before God uh, for him to deal with. I'll put the two different outlines up on the screen to kind of guide us this morning. The first one really just kind of describes the passage. In verses 14 to 18, you see the scene and the situation. In verses 19 to 27, you see that Jesus is the solution to the situation. And then verses 28 and 29, you see that Jesus is the teacher in the situation. Or if you want a little bit more application-oriented outline, we could say that our faith must be properly focused must be focused in the right direction. Our faith can be small and still be faith. And our faith can never be self-reliant. We're picking up in, in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they've been up on a mountain. And while up on the mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them. His glory was displayed in a way that that. Peter, James, and John had never seen. Now, they didn't respond uh, as well as God might have wanted them to in that moment, but it was a a glorious mountaintop experience. Now they're coming back down into the valley, and they walk up on a crowd of people screaming. Mark tells us that the scribes, those are some of the religious leaders, they're arguing with the disciples. And that word arguing means to question repeatedly with great zeal. In other words, the scribes were firing hostile question after hostile question and barely giving the disciples a chance to even answer. Have you ever had that kind of an experience? A great crowd had gathered around this scene and and I'm sure some of those people were chiming in as well. The scribes, they had just witnessed a failure by Jesus' disciples and they were leaping on the opportunity to rub it in. Suddenly, someone notices Jesus is coming and and everybody uh, is completely shocked and excited that that he has arrived. So the crowd uh, leaves the verbal beat down and shifts over to where Jesus is uh, in that moment. And they they greet him is what it says. And that's kind of an interesting word there. It it carries some sort of idea of a typical or semi-formal, hey, how are you? So here's the scene. There's this gigantic crowd of people and they're all kind of yelling and screaming and questioning the disciples. Ah! And then Jesus shows up and they say, hey, Jesus, peace, how you doing? All right? Total shift in how they're acting. All right? It's kind of like that scene where all the kids are fighting and mom shows up and they all of a sudden act like nothing's happening. That's kind of what's going on here. Verse 16, Jesus asks what the argument is about. Most likely, that question is directed towards the scribes since they were the ones delivering the verbal beatdown. And apparently, there's a moment of silence or at least a pause just long enough for this father to step forward. He's been in the middle of the entire situation and he's going to be the one who's 
going to explain everything. This man had brought his son to see Jesus. But since Jesus was up on a mountain, he decided to talk to the nine disciples who had been left behind. This man was desperate to get his son some help. Luke, kind of unusually, provides us with a detail that Mark does not. Luke tells us that this boy was his only child. This boy had a spirit that possessed him and made him mute. He could not speak. On top of that, the spirit would cause violent epileptic-like seizures. Verse 25 also seems to indicate that the boy was deaf because of the unclean spirit. What we have here is a demon-possessed boy. Now, think about this for a moment. This little boy couldn't hear or speak. That means he couldn't hear his parents say, I love you. He couldn't tell them how he felt or what he was thinking or what was going on inside of him. And at any given moment, which apparently occurred quite often, he would be thrown to the ground and convulse and foam at the mouth. Can you imagine what life was like for this boy? Can you imagine what life was like for his parents? I'm sure at some point they had been pointed at. During this period, it wasn't uncommon to think that that people in families with these kinds of issues had committed some great sin. Even the disciples thought this way. In John chapter 9, they saw a man who had been blind from birth. And the very first question they asked Jesus was, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus had to correct their thinking. He said, neither one of them sinned. Jesus had to explain to the disciples that not all sickness, not all diseases are tied to some specific sin. But this was common thinking during this time. So it it's, seems fairly likely that this family had probably experienced some sort of abandonment by their very own community. I mean, if you have a boy who can't speak or hear and lo- loses total control of himself, you must have done something wrong, Right? That was the atmosphere that this family lived in at the time. This father looks at Jesus and says, I asked your disciples to cast this evil spirit out, but they were not able. And this failure is what has led to the entire scene. Now, Jesus expresses immense frustration at this point. His rebuke is full of disappointment. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now, there's some debate about who he is talking to specifically. Is he talking to the disciples or the crowd or the scribes or this man? I think he's probably talking to everybody. You've got the disciples. They have failed to cast this demon out. The weight of this failure becomes even more clear when you, when you know what Jesus had done in Mark chapter, seven verses, or Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. There, Jesus had given them authority over demons and sent them out to cast out unclean spirits. And they had experienced success. Part of their mission was to deal with situations just like this one. And they had had success up until now. You've got the scribes. They're clearly a heartless bunch. Instead of pitying and comforting the father, they have seized the moment to shame the disciples and, and rub things in. You've got the father. We'll see that he does, he, does, he does have some faith, 
but he doesn't have enough faith. And you've got the crowd, they're enjoying a fight and then greeting Jesus as if nothing has been going on. Jesus is divinely disappointed with the entire situation. So much so that he says, how long do I have to put up with you? Jesus asks for the boy to be brought to him. The people do so, but as soon as the demon sees Jesus, he slams the boy to the ground and begins convulsing him. And Jesus looks at the man in a rather calm and caring sort of way. He asks, how long has he been like this? So we see that Jesus is not in panic mode, even in this demonic moment. Let that encourage you this morning. God is never in panic mode, never. We get a little bit more information about this boy's condition at this point in the story. We don't know his exact age, but the father says that he has been this way from childhood. And the word that is used there could mean very early, very, a very young child. But he's still considered a child as well. So my best guess, based on the words that are used here, is that this boy is probably around 11, 12 or 13, you started kind of the passage into manhood and you might have been referred to a little bit differently. So he's probably 10 or 11. But the word that is used there when the father says from childhood, it could mean as early as one or two. I want you to, I want you to process that for just a minute. Evil has no respect for persons or boundaries. First Peter 1, 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And the devil is so evil that he will devour our children, our toddlers. A demon took possession of this boy's body when he was just a little bitty thing. He robbed him of his hearing. He robbed him of his speech. He threw him to the ground over and over. And this father tells us that this demon often threw the boy into fire or water in an effort to kill him. Evil is, is terribly evil. It is not a joke or a game or something to be ignored or tolerated or entertained by. And our culture loves to entertain ourselves with, with evil. The devil and his kind prowl around seeking someone to devour. And the devil and his demons would delight in devouring you or me or our children. But notice something very subtle here. This demon had thrown this boy into fire and water time after time in an effort to kill him. But the boy was still alive. That means that this father, and likely the mother too, had plunged into the fire and into the water time after time in order to save their mute and deaf son. This is the love of a godly parent. This is a valuing of human life that we need to notice. These parents love their child. They will get repeatedly burned or soaked for the sake of their child. So let me ask all the parents and even the grandparents in this room, do you love your children? Do you love your grandchildren like this? 
Are you willing to go into the fire, to go into the water for the sake of your children? And I'm asking that in a literal way and in a figurative way. Are you willing to be like this man? He has spent years doing whatever he could to help his son, even at great risk to himself. But this man is desperate. He has dealt with this situation for years. The nine disciples had individually and collectively failed to heal this boy. Can you imagine how discouraging that would have been? What was that moment like for that dad? Can you imagine what it must have been like to see these religious leaders, these scribes, delight over a failed attempt to heal the son? It's pretty understandable how he got to the point that he was at. He looks at Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus' response is immediate. Look at verse 23. Jesus said, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Keep in mind that the boy is still having a demonically controlled seizure. But Jesus' attention is now entirely focused on this man and his faith, on this man and his doubt. His faith is small. It is, in in a lot of ways, too small. And Jesus makes it perfectly clear that his ability to heal should not be questioned. Back in Mark chapter 1, verse 40 to 45, we read of a leper that came to Jesus, but he took a very different approach uh, in his search for help. The leper said to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. Another way of saying what the leper said is this, if you want to make me clean, if this is part of your will, I know that you can. The leper is not questioning Jesus' ability to heal, He's just not sure if it's part of Jesus' will, if it's part of God's plan for him. That's a very different situation, a very different attitude from what this father has. He says, if you can. The father is doubting God. Jesus does not like this man's lack of faith. But notice something else about this man's plea. He says, if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. The man wants help too. He'd spent years caring for this child and and if Jesus healed him, it, it would be a huge burden lifted for everyone, right? And Jesus is going to help him. But Jesus is going to help the man with his faith before he ever fixes the situation. He's going to do a work in the Father before he does a work in the Son. This man's faith is weak. uh, He has too little faith in Jesus. If you you can, do something. Jesus confronts the lack of faith in the Father before he confronts the demon in the Son. And as Jesus confronts the lack of faith, the man is completely honest before Jesus. I mean, He's doing his work in the man, even as the man is being honest before him. This man cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. That is a verse worth worth memorizing and praying whenever you have doubt in God. I would say that we must follow in this man's 
footsteps whenever we find ourselves in moments of doubt, in moments where our faith is weak. We say to God, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus doesn't want to send this man away in his doubt. He meets the man in his doubt because the man asks him to. He doesn't send him away. Go fix your faith and then come back. He meets him right there in the midst of the lack of faith. Faith can be small and still be faith. But Jesus does not want our faith to remain small. He doesn't want this man's faith to remain small. So he casts the demon out. As the demon is leaving, he does his best to kill the boy again. We get another glimpse of the nature of evil here. Look at verse 26. It says that the demon convulses the boy terribly, so much so that most of them thought that the boy was dead. But Jesus lifts him up and restores him. Mark does something very interesting here. He does not tell us what the father said or did. He does not tell us what the crowd said or did. He does not tell us what the scribes said or did. We could probably guess, but Mark, in telling the story, immediately turns his attention to the disciples. Just a few moments later, Jesus gathers for a private meeting with the disciples inside a house. The nine disciples who had failed to do what Jesus had given them the authority to do ask, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus replies, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, some of your versions might have prayer and fasting. Most scholars agree that the word fasting is not in the most reliable text. It was inserted later. Uh, It's an addition to the story that, that probably shouldn't be there. If that causes red flags or you have questions about that, you can ask me afterwards. What I want to focus on right now is what does Jesus mean? This kind can only come out by prayer. I don't think that Jesus is saying that certain demons can only be cast out by prayer, but there are some you don't have to pray to get rid of. I don't think he's saying that. That can't be what he's saying. I think what Jesus is saying here is this. Guys, knowing the truth Having spiritual gifts, having skills doesn't mean anything if you aren't connected to God. Christianity is not about technique, guys. It's about connection. I gave you the authority to cast out demons, but I never intended for you to go and do it in your own strength and power. Here the disciples learn a very valuable lesson about faith. Faith never outgrows the need for prayer. We never advance beyond our need for prayer. A real and vibrant faith is characterized by a dependence on God and a life of prayer. If you've been a Christian for 30 years, you still need to pray. Our marriage never advances beyond the need for prayer. Raising our children never advances beyond the need of prayer. Doing our job, whatever it is, we we never advance beyond our need for prayer. Earlier I I asked you if you've ever struggled with doubt. What did you do in the midst of your doubt? Many of us, we try and hide our doubt from others and we might even try and hide it from God. Or, Or we try and fix it ourselves. 
We just try and conjure it up in ourselves as if faith comes from our own efforts. And what we need to do is what this man did. Just cry out to Jesus. I believe. Help my unbelief. I also asked you if you've ever tried to do what God was calling you to do, but, but somehow failed to do it. Things just went wrong. Sometimes we lack faith, but, but other times our faith malfunctions. Remember the malfunctions related to my car? I went to start my car and nothing happened. It made no sound at all. I, I tried uh, charging the battery. I jiggled some wires. I kicked the tire. Nothing. The car still wouldn't start. It turns out that my starter had died. Did you know that your car will not start if the starter is broken? Amazingly, when the disciples were confronted by a demon, they did not start with prayer. They never prayed at all, actually. And that sounds crazy to us. How could you not pray if you're confronted by a demon? But... How many of us have found ourselves in ministry-type moments and we never prayed? It's, it's probably happened more than any of us want to admit. A few weeks prior to that moment, I was attempting to clean out my car, that once-a-year cleaning, and the shop vac stopped working. It worked when I was vacuuming the passenger side of the car, but when I moved around to the driver's side, it stopped working. I kicked it. It didn't work. You know why it didn't work? It had become unplugged when I moved it. Simple problem, right? But a very significant one. <laughs> Without being connected to the power source, the shop vac no longer worked. And kicking it didn't help. The disciples had the truth. They had the authority. They had the spiritual gifts needed for the situation, but they had unknowingly disconnected from the power. They had tried to cast out a demon in their own strength and it did not work. Now consider our outline again. First, our faith must be focused in the right direction. It must be properly focused. Our faith must be focused on an able God, not on anything or anyone else. Whatever your situation is, your faith must be directed towards God, not the bank account or the spouse or the promotion, or, or whatever. It must be focused on God and God alone. Our faith can be small, but it can still be faith. In the Bible, we never see anything that indicates disbelief or doubt is acceptable to God, but the Bible doesn't, does acknowledge that it's going to be present at times. It doesn't, it doesn't back away from the subject. We see that God deals with it firmly, but compassionately. Jesus met Thomas in his doubt. Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail completely as he went to the cross. Time after time, we read calls to strengthen our faith and to help others strengthen their faith. Hebrews 12, 12 says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Jude 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Or Psalm 119, 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. There's a sense in which it's okay to admit that we are not okay. 
just like the father did. It's okay to have small or weak faith. It's just not okay to stay that way. And the father knew that. So he cried out to Jesus, help my unbelief. And Jesus met him firmly, but compassionately. And then number three, our our faith can never be self-reliant. In all honesty with you, I identify with the disciples here. I can be like this. I can take the truth that I know, the training that I have, the gifts that God has given me and totally disconnect from God. I can be a prayerless husband or a prayerless father, even a prayerless pastor. God forgive me for that. As we've been going through the life of Joseph, maybe you've seen that God is in the details and yet you still have some doubt, particularly with your own messy details. Maybe you've seen that God is sovereign over all the events of our lives and yet you you still have some doubt. Is he really sovereign over all of the events of my life? Maybe there's a part of you that wants to believe that God really does work all things together for good, but at the same time, what about this? How's he gonna work this together for good? What do you do in a moment like that? I would say that you just go before God in total honesty and say to him, I believe Help my unbelief. Don't run off and try and fix it yourself. Go to the one who gives the faith and sustains the faith and strengthens the faith. When we're struggling with doubt, we must take it to God because he's the only one that can deal with it. We must be honest with God when our faith is weak. Trying to conjure up a stronger faith before we go to God is nothing more than works. And our works will never impress God, never get us to God. Instead, when we find out in our hearts, we just, we just take it to Jesus because he's the solution to that situation. But we must also remember that we never move beyond our, our need for dependence on Jesus. Our faith can never be in ourselves. We never move beyond our need to be connected to God through prayer. So when the events of our lives are difficult or confusing or scary, it's prayer that will keep us connected to God. It's prayer that will enable us to deal with the details in a godly way. When we find ourselves in a moment where God is calling us to minister to someone in need, we do it not in our own strength, but with and through the power of God. And prayer is what makes that possible. So let me pray for us as we close this morning. Father, would you do what we cannot do? Would you work on our faith? Would you work in our faith? Would you work through our faith? Help us to trust you. Help us to come to you in doubt. Help us to be merciful, to those who are struggling in doubt. And never, ever let us forget our need for prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.